This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. As you make your way to the second chapter of Nehemiah, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was a Jewish man who was born in Persia during the Babylonian captivity. And what this means is that Nehemiah, well, he had never actually been to the land of promise. Now, I'm certain that he grew up hearing stories about the land of their inheritance, but we also know that Nehemiah was you know, one of the Jews who was not only born in Babylon, but he remained in Babylon after the Israelites were released from their captivity. As a matter of fact, it was 537 BC when King Cyrus decided to release the children of Israel from their Babylonian bondage, and that's when the first wave of exiles returned to Israel, and that happened under the leadership of a a leader named Zerubbabel. And then it was about 80 years later when a second group returned to the land under the leadership of a priest named Ezra. And then 10 years after that, well, that's when Nehemiah received a report regarding the way that his people were suffering as they struggled to secure the borders of Jerusalem. And it was at that point in time when Nehemiah started praying, he was praying for godly guidance so that he might know what he should do about this situation. As a matter of fact, it was back in the first chapter of this book where we found Nehemiah. He was prayerfully asking the Lord to provide him with the opportunity to go and present his concerns to the king. And now here in our text tonight, well, we learned about the way in which the Lord answered that prayer by enabling Nehemiah to go and, and make a difference there in Jerusalem. Now, as we continue to make our way through this inspirational book, we'll continue to see how the prayerful obedience of one devoted believer can actually make an incredible impact on those who are struggling to gain the victory over fear. And not only that, but listen, the story of Nehemiah, it also helps us to see how the Lord is actually able to use anyone regardless of their lot in life. The Lord is able to use anyone who will simply submit themselves to him. I'll remind you, Nehemiah wasn't some sort of seasoned politician with political power there in the kingdom of Babylon. He didn't belong to the wealthy class there in Shushan. No, instead he was a servant who was born in Babylon to Jewish parents who, remember, had been captured and carried away as slaves. Nehemiah was the son of slaves. And while Nehemiah was, in fact, a trusted cupbearer at the time uh, when this story and when this account uh, uh, begins, uh, we have to understand that as the king's cupbearer, he was effectively a canary in the coal mine. You know, he's basically sampling the food and the wine of the king to see if it's been poisoned. And so that's his position in life. A cupbearer of the king, expected to give his life in service of his master. And yet this servant, who remember is the son of slaves, ended up being used by God to go and secure the safety of his people in Jerusalem. And from his example, we must always remember that God isn't looking for the wisest. He isn't looking for the wealthiest. And you know, when, when famous people, you know, uh, you know, come to Christ or so we think, you know, I I can't uh, help but to hear Christians, you know, just kind of stirring around saying, Oh, it's going to be so awesome. This person, they're so famous and now they're a Christian and they're going to make a huge impact. Well, well, hold on a second. 
God isn't looking for the best looking people. He's not looking for the most popular people. He's not looking for, you know, the the wisest people or the wealthiest people. He's simply looking for those who will say, here am I, send me. He doesn't need the most qualified among us. He doesn't need the most popular among us. No, instead, he's simply looking for servants who are willing to set aside their own agenda so that we might serve our Savior. Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Nehemiah uh, did just that. He set aside his own agenda to step up and serve the Lord. And so if if you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Here we read that it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Now I want to stop right here. I want to consider how it's here in the beginning of this chapter where we find Nehemiah. He's serving King Artaxerxes according to his calling, which was that of the cup bearer. And while it's true that Nehemiah was struggling with sadness, Uh, over the situation happening there in Jerusalem. His heart was weighed down with concerns because of his people. Well, it's also true, though, that the king ended up being able to perceive the sadness of his servant. And it's for this reason that Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid. He was dreadfully afraid. And in order to grasp the reason for his fear, well, it'll help us to understand that it was actually forbidden to be sad in the presence of the king. It was forbidden. You weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. I like the way that David Guzik explains it. He declares the idea was that the king was such a wonderful person that merely being in his presence was supposed to make you forget all of your problems. When Nehemiah looked sad, it could have been taken as a terrible insult to the king. Uh, We see confirmation of this point of view in Esther chapter 4. There we learn that no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In other words, uh, no one was allowed to enter the courtyard of the king while in a state of mourning. Yeah, you couldn't even go into the gates. You couldn't even enter the courtyard sitting in sackcloth as a sign of mourning. And it's there in the second half of verse 1 of this chapter, there we learn that Nehemiah had never been sad in the king's presence before. He had never been sad in the king's presence because it was forbidden. It's for this reason that Nehemiah became dreadfully afraid as soon as he saw that the king knew that he was sad. He was dreadfully afraid. And with all this in mind, I want to consider how Nehemiah responds here to the king. Uh, If you will, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 2. Here Nehemiah writes, The king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city The place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Wow, what an incredible response. Nehemiah here, he's filled with dreadful fear and yet he sets aside that fear in order to seize this incredible opportunity to explain to the king what's happening in his homeland. And while it's possible that the king could have ordered the execution of Nehemiah right then and there on the spot, this still didn't stop Nehemiah from speaking up. For the sake of his people. 
Now, in light of his example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, you know, am I willing to sacrifice everything so that I can step up and serve my Savior? Am I willing to lay down my life for the sake of the Lord? Or am I just sadly sitting in silence as I attempt to avoid anything that might threaten my position at work or my ability to make an, a living? You know? And with this question in mind, it's important for us to understand that the saints of God who actually change the world are those who are willing to sacrifice their own agenda for the glory of God. I encourage you for homework, you can read Hebrews chapter 11 to learn about the hall of faith. But I like the way that, that Paul sums it up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. There he says, uh, he speaks of those who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women uh, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, uh, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. Simply put, the saints of God who end up making an impact on this world are those who are willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of our Savior. And in light of their example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am am I of this faith? Do I have this sort of incredible faith that, that my life might end up in the hall of faith someday? Am I ready to risk it all so that I can accomplish my calling in Christ? Am I willing to suffer the trials of mockings as I preach the message of our Messiah? Am I willing to suffer the social media scourgings that occur whenever my unbelieving friends express their contempt for my commitment to Christ? When the gospel message becomes a hate crime here in America, and oh yeah, that's coming. Will you be ready? Will you be ready to endure the fines because you posted a Bible verse you know, on, on social media? Will you be ready to suffer the punishments that occur you know, when the jackboots come kicking in the door? Listen, if you're concerned today that you won't have enough faith to stand, then it's time to start exercising your faith today. The more time we spend studying the word of God the more faith we'll have. Yeah, that's, that's the way it works. The more time we spend studying the word of God, the more faith we have. How do I know this? Well, because that's exactly what Paul tells us, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more I listen to the word of God, the more I receive the word of God, the more faith I have. How, how does that work? Well, because the more we get to know the God of the Bible, the more we realize how he's already secured our victory for us. The Lord is the one who stopped the mouth of those lions. You think Daniel stopped the mouth of the lions? No, it was the Lord. The Lord is the one who toppled the walls of Jericho. 
The Lord is the one who saved his servants from the fiery furnace. The Lord is the one who gave Nehemiah favor as he stood there before King Artaxerxes. And the more we learn these stories and the more we see how powerful our God is, well, that's the more faith we have in knowing that whatever comes our way, the Lord can handle it. We just have to continue fighting the good fight of faith. With this as the goal, I want to consider how the king responds to the concerns of his servant, Nehemiah. So if you will, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4. Here, Nehemiah writes, Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now here in these verses, we find King Artaxerxes providing Nehemiah with this opportunity to to share his heart, to to share his thoughts about the best way to solve the problems happening back in the land of promise. And in this way, we can see how this king from Persia, he was actually encouraging Nehemiah to switch from complaint mode to solution mode. That's difficult for many of us. To switch from complaint mode to solution mode is something that uh, some people have never even considered but I love the king's style of leadership here because, listen, anyone can come a complaining. That's easy. It's easy to complain. Trust me when I tell you, I mean, if anybody has a list of complaints about things happening in the world or things happening in the church, I, I'm the guy. I've got lists upon lists. I've got lists and sublists and all kinds of complaints. I could present you with a long list of complaints about everything that's imperfect here in our church. Like it is always way too warm in this auditorium. But I don't complain. But you have some people insisting our auditorium is too cold. Others, it's too hot. The coffee's too hot. The coffee's too cold. The pastor's too fat. The pastor's too skinny. No one's ever, okay, no one's ever said that last one. It's easy for us to complain about anything we don't like. The real question is this, are we ready to step up and serve so that we can help solve the problems that we're complaining about? If not, then our complaints are comparable to just clanging cymbals and noisy gongs. Listen, before we decide to voice our complaints, because complaints are like cancer, they just start spreading around. And so before we voice our complaints about whatever it it may be, we should take a moment to ask, am I ready to propose solutions for the issues that I'm about to complain about? And, And not only that, but am I ready to step up and serve so that I can actually help solve the situation? It's one thing to complain. It's another thing to offer solutions. And it's another thing to say, I'll step up and serve to be the solution. If we're not ready to step up and help be the solution for whatever it is that we're complaining about, uh, then we really ought to just not complain. It's, it's like the person who complains about our politicians and is, well, who'd you vote for? Well, I don't vote. Well, then zip it. If you don't vote, you don't have the opportunity to complain. Well, there's nobody to vote for. Sure there are. You might not vote for the guy that wins or the gal that wins, but still, you can find third-party candidates. I've found them for years, and I vote for them, and they lose every single time. 
but it gives me the right to complain. And so I keep voting. (laughs) But we need to be ready to not just see what's wrong with things happening, but we need to think through what are the solutions and pray through, you know, what are the solutions and then pray further about how I might help solve these things. And until we're ready to embrace that whole process, we would just do well to remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. It's Philippians 2 verse 14 where Paul says this. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, let me tell you five complaints that I have about this verse. No, I can't. I'm supposed to teach this Bible study without complaining and disputing. Listen, whenever the Lord leads us to provide constructive criticism, let's just call it that, Whenever the Lord leads us to provide some sort of constructive criticism, we would do well to then follow in the footsteps of Nehemiah. And with this as the goal, let's take another look there at verse 4. There in the middle of verse 4, the king asks, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah. To the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Here in these verses, we find Nehemiah spending uh, just another second here shooting up a quick prayer. Now, we studied the, the longer prayer last, uh, in our last study there in, in chapter one, but now here uh, at the time of this question, he just, he just shoots up this quick prayer I prayed to the God of heaven, Lord, help me. And then he began to speak. I I believe that he's probably praying here for the ability to clearly communicate the request that he's already considered. And then after spending that second praying to the king of kings, Nehemiah turns to King Artaxerxes and asks for permission to go and help his people there in Judah. Now, as we consider this request, there should be no doubt in our minds here that Nehemiah wasn't some sort of do-nothing complainer. No, instead, he was a problem solver who was ready to step up and serve the Lord no matter the cost and regardless of the sacrifice. And in light of his example, you know, would it be to God that we would all follow in his footsteps by restraining our complaints until we're ready to offer solutions and then step up and help accomplish those ideas? We should also notice that Nehemiah, he took the time to consider potential problems of this, of this journey so that he could uh, plan on contingencies. And with this as the focus, uh, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Here Nehemiah writes, Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now, here in these verses, we find Nehemiah. He's presenting the king with more details about his plan. 
And this not only included the time frame of the trip, but this also included a, a request for official papers from the king so that he could you know, cross all the borders and acquire all the materials necessary uh, for accomplishing his goals. And in this way, we can see here how Nehemiah was a leader who understood the importance of counting the cost and, and, and preparing a plan. At the same time, he was also a leader who wasn't going to, uh, you know, uh, give in to what I, I like to call the analysis paralysis. The analysis paralysis, well, this occurs whenever a person is overwhelmed by the fear of all unknown contingencies. Uh, you know, they're, they're completely frozen by, by uh, you know, anything that they perceive might possibly could, you know, uh, you know come into play, but yet they don't have enough to, to think it through or pre- prepare for it. And so they're, they're just kind of stuck in this constant analysis mode, unable to move forward. Rather than moving forward in faith, you know, these people become paralyzed as they attempt to, you know, analyze every possible outcome. And if this sounds like something you struggle with, I just encourage you to consider Nehemiah's example. Notice again, there at the end of verse 8. There we find Nehemiah rejoicing as he realizes that the good hand of God was actually upon him. That's so important. He, He made his plan. He asked for papers and permissions and he he attempted to deal with all contingencies that he could think through but at the end of the day he just had to realize that the hand of god was upon him and he needed to move and so he did everything possible to plan for every possible contingency that he could think of and yet he at the end of the day he has to move forward in faith as he prepares for this journey to jerusalem and sometimes we just have to realize that we're not going to be able to think through every single thing you know who do you think you are dr strange You know, you can't think through every single thing. You just finally just have to make a decision and prayerfully move forward looking for the guidance of God. It's important to recognize that there must be a prayerful balance between purposeful plans and the path of faith. Shall we make plans? Of course. It would be foolish not to. But at the end of the day, as we prayerfully make our plans... We're not going to be able to figure it all out. We just have to take a step of faith. There's nothing wrong with preparing, and and there's certainly an understanding that we need to be prayerful. But it's even more important to remember that the Lord knows how to guide us according to his grace. And isn't it nice to know that he's greater than our mistakes? Like, Like if my desire is to be in God's will, and I'm just prayerfully saying, God, just guide me, and I take a wrong step. Is he not big enough to get me back on course if that's really my heart's desire? Of course he's able to do that. So why allow allow the fear of, of failure to keep me from moving forward in faith? Let's move forward in faith, and if we get a little off course, let's keep praying, God, keep me on course. Bring me back, and he will. In order to further grasp the point that I'm trying to make, I want to consider how Nehemiah then moved forward in faith. And so if you would look with me here again at Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll pick up our study at verse 9. Here Nehemiah writes, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now I want to stop right here because here we find Nehemiah. He's now embarking on this journey from Shushan to Jerusalem. And while the most direct route was about 800 miles as the crow flies, the trade route that Nehemiah was traveling was closer to 1,500 miles. 
A trip would be equivalent to a road trip from Austin, Texas to, to Phoenix, Arizona. And while this really isn't a great distance for our modern vehicles, uh, the, this journey to Jerusalem probably uh, took a few months uh, you know, for Nehemiah and his men because this all took place in the month of Nisan, and so they probably broke down a few times along the way. Hey, if they had gone in one accord, then that would have been, that would have been different, but uh, vehicle jokes coming in handy. We should also notice that King Artaxerxes here sent captains uh, of the army. He sent you know, the, these Persian uh, military men, he sent the captains of the army, he sent horsemen to accompany Nehemiah, and we aren't provided with the exact number of these soldiers. But if we consider the research of a historian whose name is Richard Gabriel, uh, we, we come to the conclusion here that it, it's not unreasonable to conclude that there were at least 200 Persian soldiers here. So, so imagine 200 plus Persian soldiers sent to assist Nehemiah as he made his way to Jerusalem. And, and we're thinking, well, that doesn't take much faith if you've got 200 soldiers with you, Right. Well, the, the company of soldiers most certainly provided Nehemiah with an incredible level of protection, yet, yet at the same time, you know, the, it should be noted that the enemies of Israel were far greater in number. And so this was, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, provided some sense of security for, for, from like robbers along the way, but they were heading, you know, into a place where, you know, the, the enemies of Israel probably outnumbered them. And, and not only that, but listen, the news of their journey traveled faster than their horses, you know, they're in a, a large company and they're traveling probably pretty slow. And, and you better believe as people found out what was happening, that they rushed ahead with news uh, to the enemies of Israel, letting them know that these guys were coming. And Nehemiah probably knew that, the, the, that his arrival in the land of promise would quickly result in conflict as the enemy had all the time in the world to prepare, as it probably took them at least three, maybe four months to make this trip. In order to further consider what I'm trying to say here, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah's account found here in chapter 2. Look with me there at verse 10. Here Nehemiah writes, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Here in this verse we find uh, the, the first of many references to these antagonists, one named Sanballat and the other Tobiah. Sanballat the Horonite was from a town in Moab. He's probably a Moabite man. And, and, uh, and at this point in time, it's believed that he was the governor of Samaria. And then there was Tobiah the Ammonite, who was also a, an official. He had a, an official position within the Persian kingdom. Some speculate that he was possibly the governor of Ammon. And we don't know a great deal about these two men, but what we do know is that they were deeply disturbed after hearing the news that Nehemiah was on his way to, to help secure the borders of Jerusalem. And in, and in similar fashion, listen, the devil and his demons are also disturbed whenever Christian leaders in the church start helping uh, newer believers to start establishing spiritual boundaries for their lives. Much like Sambalat and Tobiah, you know, the, the devil and his demons, they are deeply disturbed when, when Christians start setting up boundaries and borders for their life. And in order to grasp my point, it'll help you to understand that the devil and his demons, they want the disciples of Christ to live in a constant state of distress. That's what they want. They want us to live in a constant state of distress, and the reason why is because the distressed disciple is a Christian who is unable to accomplish the Great Commission. 
If you're caught up with all the worries of this world and still stuck you know, with all the temptations that come from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, well, then you're not out there living the victorious Christian life and leading others to Jesus Christ. And that's what they want. They've lost the, the battle for your soul. That happened at the moment you became a believer. And so all they have left is just to stop you from making an impact in anybody else's life. And so it's for this reason that the enemy is constantly trying to keep us trapped by our temptations. Think about it. If the enemy can keep the Christian focused on their flesh, then they really don't have time nor the energy to fight the good fight of faith. If they can keep you focused on how mad you are at that other believer, if they can keep you focused on you know everything wrong with the world, if they can keep you focused on all the things that draw you away from a close walk with the Lord, then they're keeping you from fighting the good fight of faith. And it's for this reason the enemy will try to keep weaker Christians from connecting with spiritual leaders. They, they try to keep weak Christians on the fringe of the church because out on the fringe of the church where there's no accountability and there's, there's no real discipleship, yeah, the enemy can pick those believers off one by one. It's for this reason that we need to connect with the spiritual leaders of our church who can actually help us to establish spiritual boundaries, which can then help us to, to you know, set up those, those guards to, uh, to, to, to block those temptations that want to take us back into the bondage of Babylon. To further explain my point, let's turn our attention back to Nehemiah's account. If you would look with me there at Nehemiah 2, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 11. Here Nehemiah writes, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate of the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on the fountain gate uh, onto the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah, he's engaging in this covert operation. He's uh, heading out on this intel mission as he examines the walls of Jerusalem. And you might not know this, but there were actually 10 gates that people could use at one point to enter or exit the city of Jerusalem. This included the fish gate, which probably smelled really bad, but probably not as bad as the sheep gate which both of these were on the north side of Jerusalem. There was the inspection gate, uh, the east gate, the horse gate, the water gate, and there was the fountain gate. All of these were located on the east side of the city. There was the old gate and the valley gate, which were located on the west side of the city. And then the worst smelling gate of all, the refuse gate, or what some call the dung gate, which was located on the south side of the city. Now, according to Nehemiah's account here, it was in the middle of the night when he went on this covert mission. He exited the city through the valley gate, which again is on the west side of the city. 
And from there, he turned southward and went down to the refuse gate. And he traveled counterclockwise as he continued to inspect the remnants of, of the city wall. And, and until he reached the place by the king's pool, which he found to be impassable. And, and the reason why is because the, the, the walls were, were just rubble on the ground. It's at that point in time when he turns around and returns to the valley gate. Sadly, it didn't take long for Nehemiah to realize that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were, were living in a constant state of distress. And the reason why is because the defensive walls had been just completely destroyed. They had been reduced to rubble and ruin. The gates of the city, they had been burned with fire. And with that being the case, you know, their enemies were free to just come and go as they pleased. There was no real defensive wall, nor gates to close. And from this, I'd like to point out that it's in a similar yet spiritual way that there are many Christians in the church today who have allowed the enemy to access the temple, so to speak, because their gates are wide open. I'm not talking about physical, physical gates, you know. I'm, I'm instead referring to the eye gates and the ear gates that that, that uh, you know, provide access to our mind and to our hearts. And it's sad to say that there are many Christians in the world today who are allowing the enemy full access into their immaterial mind simply because they're failing to guard their gates. They're failing to guard what they look at and what they listen to. I like the way that Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6. It's there where he declares, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, listen, if your eye is focusing your attention on the dark things of this world then you're allowing that darkness to permeate your entire being. When, when you focus your eyes and, and focus your ears on things that are just spiritually dark, you better believe it's going to affect your entire life. You're constantly going to be wrestling with those thoughts, those ideas, those, those things that you've placed in your own brain. Listen, if you sit around watching depressing movies and, and getting drunk on depressing alcohol, don't be surprised when you're always depressed. Well, I'm depressed. I got, I got to go take antidepressants now. Why don't you just stop looking at all this de depressing stuff? Well, I like to get home and just have a real ugly cry after work, you know, and it's just, what? Why? Why do you want to focus on depressing things? It's going to make you depressed. If you spend all your time listening to sexually explicit music or, or watching you know, softcore porn that Hollywood puts out, don't be surprised when you're walking around constantly dealing with lustful thoughts. I think it's simply put in this way, garbage in, garbage out. When you focus your eyes and, 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 and tune your ears into things that are just nothing but spiritual garbage, that you just don't turn that off. That follows you throughout the entire day. And then you show up to church and you try to worship and all you're doing is, you know, the enemy is attacking you with all these things that you placed in your own brain. We have to guard the gates. 
We need to guard the gates of the, of the temple and knowing that the enemy will continue to attack these gates in order to tear down our defensive walls, we would do well to maintain these defensive boundaries uh, by, by having you know, strict rules about what we'll look at and what we'll watch and, and what we'll listen to. We need to guard the gates by engaging in a daily inspection, by, by taking a tour of our gates. What are we looking at today? What are we listening to today? What are we thinking about today? We need to guard these gates of the temple so that we can walk in victory against the enemy that's constantly attacking. At the same time, it's crucial for Christians to realize that we need help from on high in order to continue walking in this victory. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll focus our attention beginning at verse 17. Here Nehemiah writes, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Nehemiah, he's helping his kinsmen to understand that the only way that they would be able to defeat the enemies of Israel, it was by receiving heavenly help. They needed heavenly help, and, and, and the, only, uh, you know, the only one that can provide this sort of heavenly help is the God of Israel. Christian, listen, the God of heaven himself is the one who is able to prosper his people. Are you looking for prosperity somewhere else? It's a fool's errand. The God of heaven himself is the one who prospers his people if we would simply submit ourselves to him. He alone is able to empower his servants so that we can arise and accomplish everything that he calls us to do. And with that being the case, I encourage every born-again believer to follow in the faithful footsteps of Nehemiah. With this as the goal, it's crucial for every Christian to remember that our victory over the enemy, it's not based on our personal position. It's not based on our power. No one said our victory over the enemy, it's found in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the one who secured our victory there on the cross. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. It's there where he asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, listen, we are more than conquerors by faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason why is because Jesus already conquered sin and death there on the cross. And while it's true that the enemy will continue to attack the gates of our temple while we're still here in this fallen body, we can rejoice in knowing that the King of Kings has already conquered the devil and his demons. Are they still able to attack us? Of course. But can they separate us from the love of the Lord? Absolutely not. The Lord has already conquered the devil and his demons. He's already conquered sin and death. And with all that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the enemy now has no heritage, no right, and no memorial in the lives of those who are resting in the victory of our King Jesus. Let's pray.